At the beginning of the Advent season uh, a month ago, we started to talk about how uh, Advent is really much, much more than uh, just the, the trees, the lights, you know, the merriment, the, you know, the colors, the Christmas carols, and, you know, all the warm feelings. Uh, it's all that, and that's all good, but uh, we covered the point that uh, in a verse that you all have heard, John 3.16, it describes the problem of perishing for all. Uh, because that's what we all deserve. But in the same verse, we have the solution to that problem, which is the love of God. And that's based upon the facts that God exists, that he, bega he beget a son, and that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son to suffer and die, then rise to conquer death in order to rescue us all from that perishing. And that's perhaps, as we said then, the greatest paradox in history, that God gave his son for an undeserving world of rebellious sinners like us. So today we're going to continue a short series on the Advent. Now, you might at this point be tempted to think, Kent, your age is showing. Did you not notice that this is January and that Advent was last month? Well, yeah, I get that. I get that. However, let's remember that uh, the gospel, the coming of our Savior, is something we need to be celebrating all the time. It's a 24-7, 365 lifelong thing. So we want to take a, a little deeper look today at John 3.16 for what it tells us about belief. Uh, this is the belief that rescues from perishing and then leads to eternal life, which we hope to take up next month. Uh, we also want to consider some practical ways that we can help others see why they should believe in Christ. So the phrase is in the verse, whoever believes in Jesus will never perish, but have eternal life. And the key word there is whoever. God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes may have eternal life. And he means for his son to be lifted up to a whole world of sinners, all kinds of sinners, all degrees of sinners, the way that the serpent was lifted up on a pole for the wandering and unfaithful Israel. Why? Well, because he loves us. So God knows that we have all sinned all of our lives, well, because he's God. He knows everything about us. We are in worse shape in his eyes than we are in our own. But that didn't stop him. In fact, it's precisely the measure of our unworthiness that makes the giving of God's Son as not only the essential, but the only sufficient sacrifice for us. Now, 
If you were asked by another to sum up your faith, you might just quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, to be rescued, we must simply believe that the Son did exactly that. And if we so believe in the heart, we undeservably receive the gift of eternal life instead of perishing. So let's take a look today at this act of believing from a few different angles. Uh, first is that believing uh, is the vital link between our salvation and God's rescuing love. If one chooses not to believe Christ died for their sins, one simply gives up or forfeits the love of God and remains under the wrath of God. John 3, 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Believing is our connection with the love of God. This is God's love rescue. God so loved that believers, true believers, will not perish. And the love of God is sufficient to save the world, and it actually saves those who genuinely believe from that deserved perishing. However, the love of God does not have this effect on the lives of those who do not believe. Sadly, making a decision for Christ or not making a decision for Christ are both decisions. The one uh, this is one of the major problems that many people have with the gospel. They rationalize that if God is truly loving, he would not allow anybody to go to hell. Of course, that rationale, if you think about it, intentionally or not, fails to take into account God's purity, his holiness, his righteousness, and of course, his justice. It also refuses to recognize that God's rescue of love has no meaning whatsoever unless he is saving us from something, in particular, the wrath of his justice, which is something that all of us deserve. Instead of asking why God would send anybody to hell, the real question is, why does he not condemn us all to hell? Thankfully, the real answer is because he so loved us that he gave us his son if we will only believe. Now, getting folks to see that truth sometimes may require some clearing away of obstacles in their thinking. Now, we may be able to help these folks see that their view simply does not make sense and doesn't comport with the real world by asking some simple questions. Uh, a direct question might be, do you believe God should give the reward of eternal life to people who violently rape, torture, and murder, who never confess Jesus, and who never repent? Uh, another maybe logical two-step process would be to say, do you believe there is such a thing as justice? And most people would say yes, I think. Uh, because we all want to have justice. 
But then to follow up, now if everybody goes to heaven and there's no ultimate justice for the unrepentant, how would you define God's mercy, love, and grace? Think about those things. Now, you may or may not get a conversion out of that. You may not even get them to admit their illogic. However, you may just put a pebble in his or her shoe to help them think about their own presuppositions that maybe they haven't considered before and why the gospel makes sense. Now, this is what the Bible calls sowing. We might call it gardening. Now, the concept of sowing and reaping is displayed in John 4. There, Jesus uh, encounters and confronts the woman at the well, and then after he discloses everything that she ever did, she runs off to bring others back to meet the Messiah. I should have done that. All right. Uh, and uh, then when his disciples show up, they ask him if he wants something to eat, and he uses that as a segue into saying that his food is doing the will of the Father and that the, the fields are white for the harvest. Okay. Then he explains, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Now, now, he seems to be saying that the disciples can now reap because others have sown. Uh, this is simply to imply that in order to reap or harvest, in most cases, there must be some sowing. Now, I have nothing but praise for those who go door-to-door -door witnessing. And when that is fruitful, I strongly suspect that someone else or something prior to that event has prepared the heart of that person to hear the good news. But let me just ask, could it be that our efforts to evangelize, whether door-to-door -door or street evangelism or Christian radio or however we might do it, might yield more fruit if there was more preparation of the soil, in other words, the gardening part. While we should all be willing and able to share our faith, only a few are really adept at the harvesting and the reaping part. Uh, however, every single one of us can sow. We can garden or prepare the soil and sow the seeds for those with more effective at reaping. That's the point of the parable of the sower in the three synoptic gospels. God has a role for every single one of us in making disciples through either or both sowing and reaping to bring some to the absolute essential of belief. The world is really divided into two groups, those who believe and those who don't. Uh, those who believe are vitally linked to the love of God and are rescued from perishing. Those who don't believe remain under the wrath of God. So, believing is the vital link with the rescuing love of God. Salvation is not a matter of nationality, church attendance, genealogy, intelligence, baptism, penance, religious background, how many sins or the degree of sins you have committed or avoided. The standard 
that God holds for us, each one of us, is perfection, total purity, and none of us can clear that bar. It's simply whether we believe the Son of God paid for our sins. Another uh, thing that we can say does not lead to salvation is the mouthing of a prayer, saying certain words without genuine belief. Romans 10, uh, 9 does start with, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but it continues, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So when we speak about belief which starts our salvation, it is an ongoing condition of the heart and mind. While many recall when that decision was made, some don't, but, but many do, it's not a one-time act. The present tense in the Greek of the word believes is an ongoing, continuous action. John 20, verse 31 makes this clear. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, present tense, ongoing believing, you may have life in his name. Now, if you've thought about this, this may be a very, very difficult question arising. What are we to think when a loved one who prayed earlier in life what seemed to be a prayer of salvation falls away or rejects a previously stated faith? Now, remember, on the one hand, Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be many as opposed to few but many who will claim to be Christians who prophesy, cast out demons, do many wonderful works in the name of Jesus. But because he knows their hearts, he will say to them on the day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On the other hand, we teach and we believe here that those who are genuinely saved cannot lose their salvation. 1 John 5 tells that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, some parents who have faced this problem of children falling away from the faith have clung to John 10, where Jesus says of his sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Yeah, certainly this is a great comfort to families when a loved one passes away unexpectedly, and it should be a source of security for each one of us individually. My take on that verse is that, here's how I interpret it, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand because they can't. If they do, then they didn't believe. Yet, we cannot know for anyone else. Although there are evidences of salvation or lack of salvation in others, uh, it is possible another may just be having doubts or going through a spiritual struggle, certainly, and still be saved. But it's also possible that the loved one who never genuinely put himself or herself into the hands of Jesus, despite their prayer and 
our assumption. The deal is, it's not my call. It's his. So please note that the first verse that I quoted earlier, Jesus says he knows his sheep and they follow him. So if doubts about salvation arise, it is not wise to base eternal security on a past decision or mouthed prayer. The issue is, does one believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Savior now? If this is the ongoing condition of the heart, then, then you can know that you're saved. No doubt many of us have seen loved ones appear to wander away of, from what we thought was a genuine faith. All that we can do in those circumstances, and young parents, you're probably going to see this at some point, all that we can do is love them and be a witness to them and pray that he or she will come back if, they just, if they're just wandering or perhaps come to genuine faith for the first time. The next point uh, on your handout is that the object or focus of faith is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as given by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, in other words, the Son of God was sent by the Father. Jesus says in John 5, he who hears my word and believes him, the Father who sent me, has eternal life. Yet in John 3, he also says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Finally, in John 12, Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. The point here is that genuine belief in Jesus is also belief in the Father. And the Son was sent by the Father as a revelation of himself. So to know Jesus is to know the Father. So the ongoing believing that links us to the love of God is believing in Jesus as the Son of God sent by God. All right, I'm going to spend a little more time on this next point here. Uh, believing starts with agreeing in the mind with a, the objective truth about the Christ. Now, if you think about this, uh, I sure hope this is true. On the larger stage, I think most people still hold to reality and that there is a truth, there is a right and wrong, even if most folks are fuzzy about the source of that truth. However, as Mike taught just last week, the cultural shift in the last few years has severely eroded that foundation. Do you think it's possible that a person today who does not have the anchor of God's word to reason something like, well, you know, I've always thought that certain things were true and right and wrong, but my friends seem to be saying that people can determine their own truth. You know, I, I guess I'm just kind of going to go along to get along. I mean, I certainly don't want to offend anybody or be out of step with my friends or worse, get canceled. You know, so it's no longer just peer pressure, it's outright intimidation. So, so today, if you or I were to state that the Bible says we are created, and it's plain to see there are only two genders, a rather mild response from a skeptic would be, well, that may be your truth, 
but it's not mine. However, it goes further. Some may respond by giving us a label that ends with the suffix phobe, like homophobe or transphobe. A phobia is defined as an irrational fear, but the connotation with that suffix is really accusing of outright hatred on your part and mine. However, I don't know any Bible-believing Christians with their head on straight who hate or even fear people who are clearly confused. We should be praying for those people. Now, for the Christian, the belief or faith in Christ is not a merely subjective or emotional thing. It is rooted in the truth passed down by the Word of God. It is true that Christ is who he is, whether we believe him or not. C.S. Lewis said, an insane man in a padded cell screaming that there is no sun above has no effect whatever on whether the sun rises or sets on time. Genuine faith in Jesus agrees with the object objective truth about Jesus. For example, in John 17, Jesus prays, the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you did send me. The objective truth that the disciples believed was that Jesus was, that he came forth from the Father. Believing includes agreeing in the mind with the objective truth about Christ. Therefore, we need to know and teach concrete truths about Christ. But you all know, if you read or watch the news, that more and more mainstream thought has forsaken reality and replaced it with a divisive, frankly, anti-biblical worldview. Now, it's certainly prevalent in corporate boardrooms, many of them. It's, it's uh, also clearly in the boards of, uh, of those that direct our colleges, universities, and probably some of our seminaries. We hear more and more stories about this worldview being pushed into primary public school grades. But let me talk about Christian parents here. One of the mistakes that some of them made, whether in Christian schools or in homeschooling, is to isolate their young. In other words, we put children in an environment where a biblical worldview is usually taught, but there is no mention of what the world is teaching. I can recall an argument for isolation in the homeschooling movement many years ago that analogized worldviews with paper currency. You know, green money, you know what, remember what that is, okay? Uh, and it was said that FBI or Treasury Department agencies, agents were trained to spot counterfeit money by handling only the real paper money. That way they could know instantly when they got a hold of some fake money, just by the feel of it. Well, that may work for identifying counterfeit money, but there's a problem with extending that concept beyond the, its concrete application. Teaching Bible doctrine should help the young identify a false worldview or religion, but it does not give the Christian youth the ability to help the other person see why their religion misses the mark and does not match reality. And in addition to all that, when confronted with arguments which seem to support the false ideology by intelligent people who throw in the word science, many church kids succumb to those arguments, 
Often these young people were taught in the home and in Sunday school the what to believe, but not the why of their belief. When asked why they believe that, uh, that believe in God or think that Jesus is their ticket into heaven, the only answer they can muster is, well, I have faith. Not a very satisfactory answer. It's true, but it's not satisfactory to the person listening. Or, that's simply what I've always been told. Okay, that doesn't sell well either. It's not very convincing. When you add in the, into the cocktail of old-fashioned peer pressure, the new threat of rejection or cancellation, the young can easily bow down to the gods of the reigning culture. Perhaps this is reflected in the Barner research finding now that two out of three churched kids leave the church after they leave the home. So that church, that clear church culture trend is what motivated George Barnett to call for parents and churches to go beyond Bible stories for preteens to teach them not just Bible doctrine, but why the Bible provides the most coherent worldview and why the worldly religions, secular or whatever we want to call them, atheism, do not. Instead of isolation, the more effective treatment is inoculation. Now, we know that in medicine, to inoculate is to introduce a small dose of uh, infective material, a microorganism, what we call a vaccine into the body, which provides immunity, much like the natural immunity one obtains from infection. Uh, the medical and scientific experts of the day resisted inoculation when first introduced in the colonies until it was proven effective during the great New England plagues of the 1700s. So what are we saying here? Helping the young understand the arguments in opposition of a biblical worldview or in favor of a religion based upon mankind as God gives them the ability to ask telling questions of their peers or even intelligent-looking and revered college professors. If we want our kids to love others into the kingdom and make disciples, they must be able to keep the conversation going beyond, I believe in God, and you don't, and you're wrong. There's got to be more. Let me wrap this up with just one question. Do we really believe that simply telling our young that atheists are wrong without teaching them why their worldview is wrong and what they need to be confronted with and when, when they're confronted with all those high-sounding and so-called scientific arguments for atheism, rejecting biblical faith, do we really believe they're prepared for that if we don't tell them what they need to know to continue the conversation? Okay. All right. Uh, knowing and agreeing with the truths about Jesus is essential but not sufficient to save you. If one's belief is simply agreeing in the mind with the facts about Jesus, how is that faith any different from the demons who believe and tremble? Genuine faith goes beyond the facts of, to acceptance and satisfaction with what God did for you and me in Jesus. So consider John 6, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Believing in Jesus is more than just mental assent. It is the fulfilling of the hunger and thirst 
of life. And what does that mean? Believing in Jesus gives actual purpose in life beyond chasing the material and the emotional. All the world has to offer is the food of material stuff and the drink of temporal feelings. And for what? All the stuff that we acquire will end up someday in the landfill. All the feelings that we have will, like a vapor, fade away. Believing in Jesus brings new affections or treasures to the heart that will not rust, cannot be stolen away. Instead, they will last forever. Amen. The most important point here is that it, this faith fulfills the one question that all, if they have the opportunity, should be asking at some point. What is my destiny? Where am I going when I end up this life? Now, when you genuinely believe in Jesus, what once gave you meager satisfaction from the world loses its taste. Our palate changes. Christ so satisfies the soul that all the world offered up to us loses its appeal and its power. Or consider John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. When one fully accepts what God is for us in Jesus, it relieves the troubled heart. So it's not just an academic exercise. It's not only seeing that the biblical worldview matches reality and, it, and explains it better than any other. It certainly is that, and we should all devote ourselves to understanding that so that we can help others understand that about the reality God has given us to experience. But believing also relieves our troubled and hungry hearts. Believing is set us, setting aside our pride, humbly coming to and finding in Christ true and eternal satisfaction to the deepest longings of our soul. Okay, we're going to end on a tough one. Finally, believing is a work of God, not mere initiative. Okay, this may sound contrary, but I don't think it is. Believing is an act of the mind coming in agreement with the truth and an act of the heart being satisfied with Christ. However, our minds cannot see all spiritual truth. So just how does salvation work? Like most people I know, the interplay between election and faith is not easy for me to comprehend. Good and godly people differ on certain issues like the age of the universe. Uh, and how God's sovereignty and our free will work is one of those mysteries, kind of like the end times that we won't fully grasp until we enter eternity with the king. In the meantime, we must recognize what the Bible says about this issue. John 6, uh, Jesus instructs, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? Before that, in John, in uh, verse 37, he says, All the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Finally, later in verse 65, he says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, uh, God's reasons for choosing us are neither whimsical nor random. 
We know they are perfectly wise and good, but those reasons are all in him, not in us. As Paul puts it, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's in Ephesians 1. At the same time, the Bible also tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost in Luke 19, and that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, finally, following uh, John 3.16, we read in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So I understand this to say that Jesus teaches that the remedy to a spiritual nearsightedness of the human mind and the spiritual hardness of the human heart is the Father's drawing of his people. Whether those who are drawn, or what they call, who they call the elect, are chosen, or it is simply known by God who will respond to the drawing to become the elect, I do not know. Someday we will. We do know that God is omniscient. He, as, as John puts it, he knows everything. Uh, both Luke and Paul tell us that he has foreknowledge. He knows before it happens, and he knows who will respond to his drawing. However, we, his subjects, do not know. We are not called to determine who is or will be saved. We are just called to be his witnesses, his ambassadors, his disciples. We can also say that God who takes away the impairment, it is God who takes away the impairment of the mind and replaces the heart of stone. He allows us to see the truth of Christ's self-evidencing glory, and he gives us a taste of the all-satisfying beauty of his majesty. And he does this very simply through the words of truth, like John 3.16 through the teaching of the church and the seeds that each one of us is to spread when we have the opportunity. Listen, if you will, to a longer passage from John 17 where Jesus prays about the people whom uh, uh, the Father gave him out of the world and our role as witnesses. Starting in verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that phrase? God sends his followers into the world so that others will believe through their, the speakers, the witnesses, the ambassadors, their word. That puts the responsibility on us. 
There's a story about Charles Spurgeon, great teacher of the uh, preacher of the 19th century. Uh, it's, it's told that at 16 years old, an unconverted Charles Spurgeon sought warmth in a small Methodist chapel with about 15 other people during a snowstorm. The preacher was just a layman, and he took his text from Isaiah 45. It says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And then at one point, he looked right at Charles and said, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And Spurgeon said, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then, the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and at that moment, I saw the sun. Yeah, this morning in the Sunday school, uh, uh, it was mentioned how Israel had been in the Promised Land for 25 years. And yet, they were idolatrous. Trying to think, more than 50 years ago, I was uh, preparing for my senior year in high school. I had been in church all my life, but I was an idol worshiper. My mom told me during the summer, I may have said this before, that because I, was, I put everything into my God, which was football at the time. And she came to me and she said, Ken, it looks like football has become your God. And you know, I just can't, it just kind of you know, went right off my back. Uh, no big deal, because that's where I was. I knew that to get the girls, you had to be good at football. All right? Well, God saw fit to take away that whole year through an injury. But he also saw fit, even in my unbelief, to give me my wife through that process, who felt sorry for me, <laughs> and carried my tray. Um, but before that, I don't remember the gospel in my mainline church ever being clearly presented. But there was gardening going on. And in particular, I remember my saint, my saint mother, who never gave up on me. And she set the example for me that I so desperately needed. So when I went off to a godless fraternity house the next fall and was sitting in my room just looking at the bulletin board with pictures of Christy, and a campus evangelist was talking to my roommate, and suddenly I saw the sun. It finally made sense. So this message could be boiled down to one word, 
Just look. Look to Jesus, believe on Jesus, and you will not perish. God is at work right now, lifting the veil of the mind, softening hearts. And if you have not made that decision to give in to his drawing, please don't harden your heart. Please don't procrastinate. Don't stiffen your neck. Yield to the word of the Lord this morning. Believe on Jesus, and you will have eternal life. If you would, stand with me, and uh, we'll read a passage here out of 1 Corinthians 13. All right, together. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love.